Good morning. Thank you for uh, coming today to hear God's word. We will pray that uh, it will bring with it uh, God's blessing as well. Uh, but first, I have a question for you. And the question is, how good are we in assessing danger? How good are we in assessing danger? This uh, past week, or really uh, about a week and two days ago, there was a fire that uh, devastated the town or city of Paradise, California. Uh, one of the things that uh, struck me was that uh, there was a warning the day before it happened by PG&E that uh, they might turn off the power in that area. So they realized, someone realized, that there would be potentially uh, dangerous conditions that uh, could result in a power line uh, igniting a fire, which appears to be what happened. There is still an investigation to really determine that for certain. But it is possible that uh, the wind in some way brought down a power pole uh, carrying high voltage. And uh, when the line snapped, it may have ignited uh, some dry grass or other vegetation which resulted in this devastating fire. So the question then comes, PG&E, uh, you assessed the day before that uh, dangerous conditions might exist. And yet, you have decided not to turn off the power. How did you make that determination? And it's probable that uh, somebody was following some sort of standard book of engineering and said, well, you know, if the winds get above a certain speed, the probability of the power line coming down is getting so high. And at that particular point, we're going to pull the plug. We're going to turn off the power. So uh, that person or persons who were involved in that decision clearly underestimated the danger and what could have happened. The most destructive fire in the history of California claimed the most lives uh, in the history of California for a wildfire. So clearly, someone did not assess the danger correctly. That wasn't the only poor assessment that was done at the time. And again, I'm not saying this to blame people. Uh, I could have easily uh, done the same mistakes myself. Uh, these people could have been following standard pot protocol, at which point you have to decide who's at fault. Is it the person or is it the protocol? Uh, or is it just something that's completely out of our control and therefore nobody uh, is at fault? But uh, clearly, people were making assessments during the time and uh, made incorrect assessments. Um, the fire started at 6.30, or at least... Uh, the, the fire was first observed at 6.30 a.m. It probably started a little bit before that, but the first observation was 6.30 a.m. And yet, the uh, decision to evacuate Paradise uh, wasn't made 
until 8 a.m., in which some of the cities of paradise were already on fire. So again, people had certain information accessible to them, right? It was already on the radio that there was a fire. Certain authorities were notified. Granted, it was early in the morning. Uh, granted, the fire moved uh, extremely fast, perhaps uh, surprisingly fast, and yet, uh, clearly, people didn't realize how dangerous the situation was early on, or the notification to evacuate would have happened an hour or more earlier, and maybe lives would have been saved. We don't know. How good are we in assessing danger? Paul, in writing the book or the letter to the Galatians, had to make a similar assessment. He had to decide uh, how dangerous the situation was. What was the situation in Galatia? Galatia was a region in modern-day Turkey. At the time, it would have been part of the Roman Empire, where Paul has gone and he preached the true gospel. The true gospel is that uh, Christ died for our sins, and he rose, he was buried, and he rose from the dead on the third day, and anyone who puts his faith in him is saved from their sins. That is the true gospel. But behind Paul, after Paul left the regions of Galatia, uh, false teachers came. We call them Judaizers because they taught that what Christ did on the cross was only effective to, to save Jews. So if you were a Gentile and you wanted to be saved from your sins, it wasn't enough to believe in Jesus. You also had to be circumcised and you had to keep the law of Moses. So Paul had to make a determination. Is this a dangerous situation or is it not dangerous? Is it a problem that uh, these Gentiles were being taught that they also had to become Jews in order to be saved? Paul, uh, led by the Holy Spirit, assessed it as a very dangerous situation for the church of God. And so he wrote the letter of the Galatians. Now, for Paul, evacuation was not an option. He couldn't call uh, the city of uh, the, the different cities in Galatia and said, you know, you guys just need to leave. There's false teachers, they're spreading false, gospel, uh, false doctrine. You guys should come over here to uh, Antioch where things are safe. No, that wasn't an option. He was supposed to carry the gospel to Galatia and to every region where there were people whom Christ died for. He can't evacuate people. He needed to put out the false teaching, and that's really what the letter to the Galatians is. It's this effort to put out the fire, to put out <coughs> the false doctrine that a person has to keep the law in order to be saved. And uh, someone mentioned to me the other week that our messages seem a little bit repetitive, and uh, there's a reason for that, right? Uh, if you have any kind of fire, you will put all your resources to put it out, right? I mean, you'll call plane after plane to dump retardant. You'll get uh, the uh, fire trucks there with the hoses. You're going to get equipment there to mow down trees. Anything, everything that is necessary to put out a fire because of that danger. 
And so, again, Paul will be attacking the same false gospel in this passage we'll look at today, as he will in the continuing weeks. Now, he, he, does, he does it by looking at different aspects, right? He doesn't just repeat what he's saying. He finds different ways in which to uh, support the true gospel and to attack the false gospel. Uh, last week, he did it by reminding the Galatians of how they were saved. And uh, the first verse I'll read today is really the last verse of that message, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 5. This actually was from the previous passage, but it connects to the thought of this passage, so I'll read it. Galatians 3, 5. Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? If you recall, Luke uh, uh, explained the passage to us that uh, the Galatians were saved by faith. They uh, heard the gospel that Paul was bringing. They believed that, and their lives were changed. They received the Holy Spirit. Their lives were transformed. They were different. There was evidence of salvation. And Paul asked them, how did it happen? Did it happen by the hearing of faith? Did you just hear the message and believe it? Or did you do good works? Did God give you the Holy Spirit after you were circumcised and start keeping the law? No. It happened as soon as they believed. And therefore, it was evidence that we are saved by faith. That's the true gospel, salvation by faith, not by works. You didn't receive the Spirit by keeping the works of the law, okay? So that was what uh, Paul emphasized in the previous section. Now he's going to take us to the Old Testament. You might say, uh, well, the Galatians uh, may have been a special case. Maybe God chose to save them by faith, but perhaps that's not the standard rule, and other people are saved by keeping the law. Right? That's a question maybe the Judaizers could have brought forth. Um, and so Paul will take us to the Old Testament and show us, no, no, salvation by faith was also taught in the Old Testament as well. That was the experience of people in the Old Testament, not just the Galatians were saved by faith. Also the Old Testament saints were saved by faith. So let's read the rest of the passage for today. Verse 6, Galatians 3, 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, 
having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Who does Paul take us to in the Old Testament to prove that salvation is by faith? He takes us to Abraham. Why Abraham? Why is Abraham such an important example for Paul to use? Well, uh, to start with, Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. Right? He is the first one who is recognized by the Jews as a Jew. All Jews are descendants of Abraham. Uh, also, Abraham was the one to whom God gave the special promise uh, that this passage refers to. In Genesis 12, we see God calling Abraham. Uh, verse 1, he says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham started out as a Gentile, if you would, uh, also probably an idolater, as was his family. But God called him. God appeared to Abraham and he said, I want you to come out of that lifestyle. I want you to come out of the country that you were living at at the time. It was, it was among the Chaldees, so probably the areas of, of uh, Lebanon, I'm sorry, of uh, Babylon. And, uh, and I have a great plan for you, right? If you will follow me, then I will uh, bless you. I will make you a great nation. So really, the existence of Israel as a nation is the direct result of Abraham believing God, following God, and then God fulfilled his promise. He turned him uh, into a great nation. That's the nation of Israel. And, uh, and he gave him special promises of blessings. So that's, that's what's so special about Abraham. That's why... The listeners, as Paul turns to the case of Abraham, how was Abraham saved, would say this is of great importance because what God did with Abraham uh, certainly would be very significant. Well, what did God do with Abraham? How did God save Abraham from his sin? Well, verse 6 tells us, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So it says that, God saved Abraham by faith. To account, to account uh, righteousness to a person is the same as saving them from their sin. So our problem is that we are sinners. We do things that God tells us not to do, things that God hates. And God tells us that uh, heaven is a holy place. You can only be with God if you are holy. And so our sins keep us out from the presence of God. So we really need two things to happen. We need somehow our sins to be forgiven, all the wrong things that we have done, 
And we also need to have a righteous start status before God. So often those two are interchanged uh, in the scriptures. Both are true. We must have our sins forgiven and we must be given the righteousness of God. And so it says that God counted to Abraham his faith for righteousness. Abraham's faith was counted for righteousness. Now, to see how that transpired, we could turn to Genesis chapter 15, where the event is recorded in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham. By the way, I say Abraham. The scripture here says Abraham. Halfway through Genesis, Abraham's name changes to Abraham because most people know him as Abraham. I'm calling him Abraham. By the way, the difference is uh, Abraham means exalted father. Exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. Right? Both are true of Abraham. He was an exalted father, and he becomes a father of a multitude. Okay? Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So this is some years after God called Abraham to follow him into uh, the land of Canaan, as it was at the time. And uh, certain things have transpired. Uh, Abraham, Abraham may have a cause for fear because he was just involved in a battle. He, he destroyed a number of kings who kidnapped his cousin Lot, and he restored uh, Sodom, uh, its possessions and its people. So maybe he had reasons to be nervous, and so God come and he reminds Abraham, he is his shield, he is his exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. I want to pause here. I want to pause here because God has promised Abraham that he was going to make him a great nation. What do you need to become a great nation? Children. All right. Now, years have passed. Abraham is now an old man. I, I, I'm not sure exactly how old he is. Uh, probably in his 80s at this particular point. His wife is also old, about 10 years younger than him, so in her 70s, and has proven herself to be barren, which means she cannot naturally bear children. Right? And God has made this promise to Abraham, and yet nothing has happened. No children. And now God is coming and he's reminding Abraham of his promise to him, and Abraham has the goal to say to God, where are the children you promised me? Right? And you'd understand Abraham is perhaps frustrated and say, you know, God, you've made a lot of promises, and I'm not seeing the fulfillment of those promises. Right? Now, again, you know, we don't want to be too hard on Abraham, and, uh, and, and certainly he is not speaking disrespectfully to God, but he's raising the issue of the fact he is childless in spite of God's promises of being his shield, being a great reward, and certainly he remembers God's previous promises of making him a great nation. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, 
this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. And so God is uh, continuing here with the promise to Abraham of children, even though uh, he hasn't had a child yet, and even though he is probably years away from having uh, the child that God promised him, God says, no, no. This one shall not be your heir. I will give you a child. A child will come out of your own body. You don't need to adopt anyone. You will have a child. And in fact, step outside and look up to heaven. Count the stars if you are able. And you will have more children than that. And the scripture says, Abraham believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So we want to recognize when Abraham is choosing here to believe God, he's not just choosing to believe God for this one promise. He is really choosing to believe God for all of his promises because this was the key one. Right? And so Abraham, by a simple act of faith, maybe a difficult one, but it's still just an act of faith. He did nothing other than believing what God said. And the Bible, the Old Testament, tells us God saved him, that he accounted it to Abraham for righteousness. Okay? So that's, that's the case that Paul is bringing to the Galatians. Consider Abraham. Wasn't Abraham saved by faith? And the answer is, yes, Abraham was saved by faith. The next question we want to ask ourselves, who is the heir of Abraham's blessings? I have a chart here. And interesting statistics, for those of you who uh, like bar charts, uh, this, if I understood correctly the charts, is the uh, rate or the number of cases brought before a high court concerning a dispute about inheritance, right? So let's say uh, my uh, parents died and uh, me and my siblings couldn't agree about the inheritance, who gets what. Perhaps my parents weren't very clear in how they wrote uh, their will. Or other means we could sue, right? You could go and, and sue and say, no, the inheritance is not being fairly divided. I deserve a, a bigger portion. Well, that's increasing. That's basically what this chart is showing. More and more people are going to court and saying, no, I'm not getting my fair share of the inheritance, and I want more. Right. Um, in this case, there seemed to be some dispute about who is the heir of Abraham's blessing. Here Paul says, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. <coughs> the Jews believed, and, and rightly so, that they were the descendants of Abraham. Right? And because they were the descendants of Abraham. They inherited Abraham's status of righteousness, of being right before God. Um, this is why John the Baptist, when he was preaching, felt the need to say this in Luke 
chapter 3, verse 8, uh, John the Baptist is speaking to his listeners, who are Jewish, by the way, and he says, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Why? <coughs> Does John the Baptist feel the need to tell them not to think of themselves as sons of Abraham because they believe that by virtue of being sons of Abraham, they were automatically right with God. I didn't realize how real this belief was until I was in, um, I met some um, Orthodox Jews uh, in New York. I was there with Jews for Jesus. I was passing out tracts and telling people about uh, how they can be saved. And I was met by an Orthodox Jew who was astounded that I would tell people, uh, especially Jews, they needed to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. And he asked me some questions. And what surprised me is all he cared about was my lineage. Was my father Jewish? Was my mother Jewish? All right, then we don't have to worry about you. Literally, you know, he was confident that I will go to heaven because my father and my mother were Jewish. That is what the people in John the Baptist day believed. And that's why he say, don't say to yourself that you're sons of Abraham, and because of that, you have no spiritual need. Right? And that's why he says, God could raise up sons to Abraham out of these stones. He made Adam and Eve out of dust. Right? It's not hard for God to make people. But... There needed to be something else for the Jews that were listening to John the Baptist in order to be saved. It wasn't enough to simply be sons of Abraham. And uh, so Paul <coughs> tells us here what is it that we really need to have to be true sons of Abraham or heir of Abraham is faith, right? Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Abraham. I was uh, helping Luke and Jen, as were some of you, move yesterday. And uh, I have here uh, a picture that shows uh, me and uh, somebody else. Anybody? Can anybody tell who that is over there? <laughs> yeah, that's my son, Ben. And, uh, you know, you could tell we're father and son because we're wearing the same shirt. <laughs> now. Uh, so there's probably some physical similarity. At least, you know, everybody told me when he was born, he, he looks just like you. And of course, when he was born, he didn't have as much hair. So he probably looked more like me than he looks today. But yeah, we have uh, often physical similarity, right? Our children would look like us. Uh, but ideally, you have more than physical similarity. Ideally, uh, parents will teach their children uh, what to behave, how to behave. Uh, they will give their children certain moral values and training. And the hope is the children would actually follow in the parents' step. I know that that has broken up in our society now. You see less and less of it. Uh, we give our children to public schools to raise, uh, psychologists. Uh, we take our children to the doctor. We're not allowed to go in with our children. So the doctors can ask our children questions that they don't want the parents to be around. 
Society is working hard to break up the family structure and take away uh, children from their parents in that sense. But in the ideal world, uh, parents will be raising their children and children will be following their parents' step. And that's what, uh, that's the sign of really being uh, somebody's child is the fact that you bear similarity to them. And so Paul could say, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Why? Because Abraham was a person of faith. Right? Abraham was saved by faith. And so it's only those who are sons, uh, only those who are trusting in God and are saved by faith that bear that similarity to Abraham. And therefore you could say, these are the true sons of Abraham, those who believe God and are saved by faith, not those who are trying to earn their salvations as the Judaizers were. Okay, <clears throat> the next question we want to answer is what happens when we try to be saved by keeping the law? Because he says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. What happens when we are trying to be saved by keeping the law, as the Judaizers will, right? They came to the Galatians and said, if you want to be saved, you have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law of Moses. And so they're telling people, you need to try to do all these things to be saved. What happens when we try to do that? Well, Paul answers, when we try to do it, we are under the curse. And he quotes a verse from the Old Testament that says, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You may have seen a movie or read a book where there's a curse being laid, right? So when we're saying curse, we don't mean just saying a bad word. We're going to follow the primary definition of the word, which is what the scripture used. The primary definition of the word uh, curse is uh, a solemn utterance intended to invoke a supernatural power to inflict harm or punishment. I'll read it again. A solemn utterance intended to invoke a supernatural power to inflict harm or punishment. So the idea is if you do something that I tell you not to do, may this terrible thing come upon you. Right? That would be, in a sense, laying uh, a curse on you. And what this passage says is there was a curse associated with keeping the law. When God gave the law to Moses and through Moses to the nation of Israel, it came with a curse, something that bad that would happen to them if they wouldn't keep it. And uh, God makes very clear uh, what this curse is. Uh, if you want to turn or you can just look at the screen, I'll be reading uh, quite a few verses here. I apologize. But um, we want to be fair. We want to understand uh, what God was communicating to the Jews about the serious implications of not keeping the law, not doing what he told them to do. And that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 27. We'll start there, starting in verse 11. And Moses commanded the people on the same day, saying, 
These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. When you have crossed the, over the Jordan, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin, and these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse Reuben, God, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So this is Moses speaking at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. For those of you who are familiar, the book of Deuteronomy is a review of the law that God gave Israel. It's done more or less on the last day Moses is alive. He basically tells the children of Israel, remember, here are all the things God told us to do. And this is, comes at the very end after he gave them, re reminded them of all these commandments. He says, this is what you need to do when you finally enter the promised land, because they're still right across the river from the promised land. When you go into the promised land, I want these six tribes, this half of the nation to stand on this mountain, and this other half of the nation to stand on that mountain, and then I want you to declare these curses and blessings. Now, we'll focus on the curses this time. The blessings don't really apply because Israel never kept the law, so they never were the recipients of the blessings, right? But half the nation is going to be shouting these things out. Verse 14, And the Levite shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Now this is just the first one, right? This is the first law he reminds them of, or rather that they are specifically to lay a curse against, and that was the uh, a law against building idols. Right? Worshipping anything other than the true God. Right? So, reminding them and saying, curse be the person who said, and everybody, or at least half of the nation of Israel will say, amen, let it be done. Let a person who does such a thing be cursed. Meaning, let all these bad things happen to them. Continues in verse 16. Cursed is the one who treats his father or his mother with contempt. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who makes the blind to wander off the road. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who perverts the justice due to the stranger, the fatherless and widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. We'll skip to verse 26. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Right? So everybody agrees that anyone who breaks any of these commands should be cursed. What is the curse? What exactly will happen to those who do not keep all the commandments God gave in his law? That comes in the next chapter. We'll pick up in verse 15 again. We're skipping the blessings because they never applied. Verse 15 of chapter 28. But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. So these are the beginning of the descriptions of what will happen to Israel if they do not keep the law. Every commandment that God has 
in the book of the law. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the plague cling to you until he has consumed you from the land which you are going to possess. The Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning fever, with the sword, with scorching, and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And no one shall frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors, with the scab, and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of heart, and you shall grope at noonday as a blind man gropes in darkness. You shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and plundered continually, and no one shall save you. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall lie with her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but shall not gather its grapes. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Your donkey shall be violently taken away from before you and, you shall, and shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies and you shall have no one to rescue them. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people and your eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all day long and there shall be no strength in your hand. A nation whom you have not known shall eat the fruit of your land and the produce of your labor, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually. So you shall be driven mad because of the sight which your eyes see. The Lord will strike you in the knees and on the legs with severe boils which cannot be healed, and from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. The Lord will bring you and the king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, and you shall become an astonishment, a proverb and a byword among all nations where the Lord will drive you. You shall carry much seed out to the field, but gather little in, for the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and tend them, but you shall neither drink of the vine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olive shall drop off. You shall beget sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. Locusts shall consume all your trees, 
and the produce of your land. The alien who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall become come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which he command you, and they shall be upon you for a sign and wonder and on your descendants forever. I'll stop here. There's another 20 or so verses of this, but you get the idea. And... Uh, you know, why are we so shocked when we read these lists of curses that will come upon Israel when they disobey God? And I believe the reason for that is we just don't take sin seriously. We don't realize how offensive our sin is to God, how holy God is, and how there is nothing else God can do about sin, but send judgment on those who commit it. The Lord Jesus will pick this up for us in uh, Matthew 25 and tells us the end of the story because this really was a special curse on the nation of Israel since they had that special privilege as God's people a special mission God had for them. He gave them the law. He didn't give other nations the law, laws of Moses. Now, the law of Moses does describe the kind of righteousness God requires, right? But Israel was in a particular place, particular uh, place where God was working in their lives, and so we have to be careful how we apply what God tells them. But the next verses certainly apply to all of us. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. This is judgment time. The Lord Jesus came to this world first to die on the cross and to rise from the dead to provide salvation for everyone who would believe in him. But he's coming again. And the next time he is coming will be to judge the earth. And this is judgment time, and he describes it for us in these verses. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's one half. Remember, he's separating them. The sheep, as the sheep from the good nations, right, peoples, half, well, I shouldn't say half, some number on his right hand, some number on his left hand, and he says to those on his right hand, come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, right? These 
are the people who are saved. These are the people who had their sins forgiven. These are the people who have been given the righteousness of God, which we know comes by faith. Verse 41, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Who is the first person in the scripture who is cursed? Actually, it is the serpent that uh, Satan used to lead uh, Adam and Eve into sin. Right? And here, really, it was a curse directed against Satan. And here we see what the curse was. It was really that of eternal judgment. Hell was not created for people. Hell was created for Satan and his angels. But those who persist in following Satan into sin will end up in the same place as Satan ended up, or will end up. Okay, so that is the curse of the law, right? What happens when we try to be justified by the law? Well, it brings us under the curse. What does the curse say? That cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. If you're under the law and you're not keeping each and every law, all of the time, you are cursed. And that curse ultimately speaks about eternal damnation. Right? If you want to be justified by your works, you're under that curse. Very clear in God's law. You're placing yourself under a curse. Right? Now, lest someone will say, well, you know, I really am a pretty good person. And I think, you know, I can somehow meet God's standards. Right? Of, uh, of righteousness. And so I'm going to work really hard to be the best person I can and hope and hope that that's good enough to get me to heaven. Well, Paul adds to that in verse 11. He says, But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. You know what? From square one in the Old Testament, God says no one will be justified by the law. The only way anybody will ever be right with me is by faith. Not by keeping the law. Well, someone might say, well, you know, I just, I'm going to mix the two, right? Because I think both are important. I have, I have to do my, my part, and God has to do his part. So we'll have some of law and some of faith. <laughs> well, Paul is very clear here. Yet the law is not of faith but the man who does them shall live by them. Right, you cannot mix the two. <clears throat> either, either you're trying to be justified by the law, yes, be circumcised, yes, keep the law of Moses, or it's by faith in what Christ has done for you. What did Christ do? to deliver us from the curse of the law. Let me give you an illustration. I hope that it's helpful. 
But let's say you were in the cent center of paradise. The whole city is burning around you. Uh, your car got stuck. In fact, its tires melted on the road. And you just were able to retreat far enough so you weren't burned with your car. But uh, you see the fire is closing all around you. You have no chance. And then you see a helicopter. And uh, it's not a rescue helicopter. It's a news helicopter. Somebody wanted to <coughs> capture the story, get the scoop. And uh, so he's there with his camera uh, and a pilot. And he sees you on the ground and uh, sees you running, trying to escape from the flames. He sees it closing all around you. He knows that you have no chance. And he makes a decision. He tells the pilot, land the helicopter. The helicopter lands a uh, short distance from you. You run to it. And uh, to your surprise, the cameraman steps out. And uh, he pushes you into the helicopter. And he tells the pilot, take off. The cameraman knew that the helicopter couldn't take the weight of another person. It wasn't designed for carrying things other than the two um, passengers and the equipment. And so he chooses you over him. That is what the Lord Jesus did for us. Right? He saw us from heaven. He didn't have to come. He wasn't in the same trouble that we were in. The Cameron wasn't, wasn't in trouble. He could have stayed in the helicopter. He had his scoop. He could have gone back, reported what has happened. He was under no obligation to rescue you. So Christ was under no obligation to rescue us. And yet he came. The passage says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This verse is taken from a passage in Deuteronomy also. Deuteronomy 21, 22 says, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, for he who is, is hanged is a cursed of God. The Jews did not crucify people. Uh, they didn't even hang people to kill them. They would stone people. That was the way that the Jews were instructed to execute a criminal. It was by stoning. But it seems to allow for the possibility here of a body being hanged after it was killed. Why would you hang a body after it was killed? And uh, the only reason I can think of is as a lesson. Right? You want people to uh, realize how terrible the crime was that was committed and make sure nobody else will commit it. And so you hang the perpetrator, his dead body, so everybody could see his dead body 
and know that um, here is a person who, who is accursed, a person who deserved to die, a person who has no place on earth, nor in heaven. Now Paul takes that verse, again by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and applies it to the Lord Jesus, and it gives us uh, perhaps an appreciation to Christ being on the cross. Why was Christ hanging on a cross? And the passage here uh, suggests to us it was to show that he was cursed. That he was cursed. Why was Christ cursed? Did he fail to keep the law? No, no. Christ kept the law. He was the only one who could keep the law. Why was he accursed? Well, because he took the curse that was directed at you and the curse that was directed at me. You see, God is righteous and he couldn't just dismiss your sin and my sin that had his curse directed again. There had to have been someone who paid for the curse of the law. And that person was Christ. That's what it means to redeem. Redeem means to purchase. Christ purchased us from the curse of the law by paying the penalty of the curse himself. He was cursed in our place. Why was he cursed? That the blessing of Abraham, justification by faith, might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. Even the Gentiles that had nothing to recommend them to God could be saved because Christ paid the price. He experienced the punishment, the curse of God against our sins so that we could be saved. And so that leaves us with a choice, brother and sister or visitors. What will it be for you? Do you recognize the danger of your sin? Do you recognize how God feels about your sin? Do you recognize the curse of the law that is aimed against the sinner? Well, God has sent us a redeemer, someone who paid the penalty in your place, someone who experienced the consequence of that curse so that you won't have to. Won't you trust him? Won't you trust him today? Father, we thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize that uh, he paid the penalty that our sins deserved and uh, that he is the only way for salvation and that all that is required of us is simple faith in him. We pray here for anyone who hasn't yet placed that faith in him that you will help them do so. For we ask it in his name. Amen.